Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's episode. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and with me back at the table today is Chris Miller. And Chris, at the, during your sermon here this past week, you said there's so much you've left out. This is your chance. Let's get it in. <laughs> well, how much time do we have? Well, we've got as much as we need. I'll tell you when to stop. Okay. But it is great to have you back, and uh, I know that you're gonna, you'll knock it out here. So, Chris, let's start here. You shared the focus on the prophecies from Micah, Hosea, and Jeremiah there in chapter 2, and you mm-hmm. noted that Jesus is presented here as, for example, the better king than David, mm-hmm. uh, the better son than Israel, mm-hmm. the better rescuer, my word, I don't know that you use that, but I'm calling it the better rescuer than Moses. Mm -hmm. It really lends further credibility to what Trent Rogers was saying last week when he noted that all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus as the redeemer of mankind. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does, and it's not just a cliche that we use, but it's absolutely true. So better than David, better than Israel, and if you uh, wanted to talk about Moses, you might say a better prophet than Moses. Certainly. From Deuteronomy 18, he's a better prophet, one that you will listen to. But it, it simply tells us that everything that happens in the Old Testament has this other bigger dimension and this plan where God is moving to. And so the, the reason why he likens him to David is because that helps us connect with him. Oh, we remember what David was like, but something better. Oh, remember what Moses like, but something better, so that all along, from the very beginning, it's only been focused on Jesus. And, and I think that's why those two on the road to Emmaus said our hearts burned. Your mm. heart burns when you say, ah, oh, I've never seen that before, but it was always there, right in front of me. Now I can see it. Yeah, I can see it. That's right. And God's saying, yeah, I put that there. I planned that. This, this is the whole game. This is where the focus ought to be all the time. You have spent much of the past two years, three years uh, in a study of Matthew mm-hmm. uh, professionally. Yes. And uh, tell me, have there been some of those moments for you during your, your study? I mean, you've been studying the Scripture, you've been preaching, you've been teaching from the Scriptures for over 40 years now. Were there some of those moments where you just said, whoa, whoa, where was, where's that been? I don't know. You want me to be honest? Yeah, yeah I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's like, yeah. I'm embarrassed. Like, what, what was I looking at all these years? And I didn't, I never saw those things. And, and it's... Uh, Again, just a testimony to the richness and the depth of the scriptures that when we talk about it being inspired, it is God's word and it's ingenious mm. as God. Amen. Amen. Well, then throughout chapter two, we're reminded of the difficult circumstances that, that provide, I'll call it the background music, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good, that's uh, a good for term. For the story of the nativity. And we know that God does nothing out of order and out of the proper time. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of God's perfect responses in his perfect timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already seen that his perfect response often isn't what we might expect mm-hmm. and certainly wasn't what the Jews were expecting here. But talk about this idea of God's providing exactly what we need at exactly the proper time and our responsibility to trust him and, and just to wait on him, wait on his perfect timing. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that comes with the idea of the son. And I think that's why God uses the metaphor of the son because every parent knows that your children are completely dependent upon you. Now, as children, we don't realize that until we have children of our own. Mm-hmm. But you realize that little infant, and even as a young boy, is still completely dependent. So the, the idea that Israel is God's son means that 
Israel's primary responsibility is to trust the, the goodness of the Father implicitly. Mm. And so when God leads them then up to the Red Sea and they look at it with the Egyptian army coming from behind and they panic and they say, oh, no, what are we going to do now? Well, if God is good, he has a solution. And when they get into the wilderness and they say, oh, there's no food on the ground. Well, God is good and he has a solution. And so the Father provides everything you need when you need it because he is not only good, but he's really smart. So when Jesus is out in the wilderness and the devil says, you should turn that stone to bread, what Jesus is thinking as the perfect son is, you know what? Uh, the father knows. And if I need this now, he will provide it. And, and, and this was at a real crisis point. After 40 days, he was hungry. And so still, even in the face of those difficult circumstances, he looks at the devil and says, people don't live by bread alone. We, we live by, the, by every word that comes out of God's mouth, and God will provide. And the sweet part about that temptation is that as soon as it's over, hmm. angels come and minister to him, and the word has the idea of food, hmm. that they serve him food from the Father just when he needs it. I bet it tasted better. I'll bet it did. I'll bet it did. <laughs> Chris, you, you uh, give a couple of examples there of God providing, not in the way that certainly the Israelites expected at the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm expecting that Jesus had a little different perspective perhaps than the Israelites did. But uh, that doesn't mean necessarily, or does it? I think I know the answer. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that God's always going to provide a safe way out. There have been times that, you know, history is filled with martyrs. Absolutely. History is filled with suffering. Yes. When God didn't provide a way out mm -hmm. as we would want to see a way out. Right. Talk about that. That's the story of Job, too, like for, and, and many others. And, and even Jesus himself. Um, did, did God provide a way out of the cross? Mm -hmm. And the answer, of course, is no. God provides a way out for Jesus every time he needs it. But when he doesn't need to escape... <laughs> The, the, there, there, there's the cross, right? And we never know when that's coming in our lives, but we can always trust that God knows the right time. Yeah. So yeah. how how long does my life last? It, it might last today. It might be thirty years, but uh, God knows exactly, and His time is okay with me. And you you talked. Uh, it was uh, interesting. You mentioned about uh, thinking of as a father to mm -hmm. our sons. Mm -hmm. You and I are have a unique uh, situation that we share here over the past uh, you about three or four years ago, I'm thinking, three or four or five, and me here in the past year and a half, having lost our fathers. Mm -hmm. As a son, mm -hmm. it reminds me of my father. All he wanted was for me to have what I needed yeah. and even to have a lot more than I needed, to yeah. be honest. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Well, I I'm, I'm guess I am pretty sure. I've never had anybody so unconditionally for me. Mm. As my dad. Yeah. And Chris, for those people, it, it strikes me as I was preparing here, it strikes me that not everybody has had mm -hmm. that type of a father figure. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that person who is, uh, yeah, but I don't have that kind of a picture. Yeah. It's sad, but there is hope here. And we have a father who really, truly loves us, who mm -hmm. doesn't want to give us a, a stone, wants yes. to give us a fish, doesn't want to give us a serpent. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And, and for those of us who've had those kind of fathers, that's a blessing. For those who haven't had those kind of fathers, there is a longing in your heart for one. And he's there. And he's there. And, that, and that's, the, that's the, the story of Scripture. That's why this father-son thing is throughout the Scriptures, from Exodus all the way to the Gospels and to 1 John. 
What an amazing thing that we might be called the sons of God. That is amazing. Okay, so another thought that comes to to my mind is something we touched on last week with Trent, and, and that is that there are no circumstances, nothing, that can overwhelm God or thwart his plans. Mm-hmm. God has a plan, and it will not be thwarted. Uh, talk about that a little bit. I think that that is the big lesson, especially of, the, of this chapter, too, because from one perspective, we talked about various layers in the sermon, and, and we can do that here. From a human perspective, from a human layer, everything seems sort of helter-skelter in chapter 2. I mean, we end up going to to uh, Bethlehem, and that's okay, but then things get hot in Bethlehem, and we have to flee. This Messiah of God has to run for his life in the middle of the night. And then of all places, we have to go to Egypt, a place of slavery. Hmm. That doesn't seem right. Hmm. And then when we come back, the, the angel forgets to tell us that Archelaus is reigning instead of Herod, and that's even worse. And so instead of intending to stop at Bethlehem and grow up there as a shepherd, he has to go up to Nazareth. So all of those, all of those things from a human perspective look like, what's going on here? And yet the prophets come along to say, no, psst, it was exactly as it was supposed to be. Mm. It fits the pattern. Well, and if you go to the end of the book, you're going to see the same thing. I believe that uh, in past years, you know, I remember you teaching through, I believe it was John, mm-hmm. where you were chronicling Jesus, uh, Jesus manipulating the circumstances uh-huh. and bringing himself in on the right day, at the right time, at the time leading up to the crucifixion. Exactly. Same types of things we're mm-hmm. seeing there. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and Jesus, as God doing that, right, he raises Lazarus from the dead just outside of Jerusalem, six weeks before his own resurrection. So Boom, Lazarus look at that, is, guys. <laughs> yeah, look at that. And, and, then, and, then, and then, of course, he just kind of provokes the situation and, and really stirs things up hmm. deliberately and intentionally so that when he comes, there's this buzz about the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. And we're seeing a lot of the same things here in chapters 2, mm-hmm. 1 through 3 and 4. Yes. So, okay, so I've had a couple people who uh, weighed in a curiosity regarding the Ma- Matthews using the descriptive noun Nazarene. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked about this when you the latter part of your sermon. You use that Nazarene to point to the Old Testament prophet's description of Messiah. He, he uses direct scriptural references in the first three sections of the chapter. The question from these individuals, why wouldn't he have done so in this instance? Why wouldn't he have pointed perhaps to a passage in Isaiah or a passage in, you know, any number of passages throughout the prophets? Are there other instances in Matthew where he does this, where he uses this type of a summary statement to cover different prophecies? That's a good That's a good question, and I think the answer to it is no. I think this one is very unique. But as I said on Sunday morning, it really bothered me I didn't like it at all, and as I wrestled with it, I came to terms with it, and I, I believe I said, maybe in both services, that I think this is the most important quotation, not one to be embarrassed about, but important because Matthew's teaching us to read our Bibles, hmm. and we, we want to see this direct prophecy and fulfillment, but, but what he's doing here is saying this story of Jesus is everywhere, and even the, even the subtle places you never would have guessed, and so... He, he says it's fulfilled, a direct prophecy? No, just all over the place. The rejection of Joseph by his brothers as mm. Joseph is a messianic figure. The rejection by David, by David's brothers, 
as he is a messianic figure. And so you start to look and you say, oh, it is, it's there, it's, oh, I didn't see it embedded in the story. And so by giving us a quote that's not a quote, he encourages us to look deeper to see all the treasures that the Father has embedded hmm. in the Old Testament. Kind of Bible reading 401. Exactly, exactly. And I know that I, I hesitated to go into it that deeply because I was afraid everyone's going to think this is a professor, this is an academic thing. <laughs> but no, he's teaching all of us how to read our Bibles well. Hmm. And uh, we need to look deeper and search for them deeper. And when we okay. do, we'll find Jesus. Well, and it goes back to what you were saying. After 40 years of teaching, you're still finding things. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's uh, mm -hmm. unfathomable. Un the, the depths are unfathomable of Scripture. We have the benefit, Chris, of, of viewing the nativity in light of all that has transpired over the past 2,000 years. They didn't have mm -hmm. their, those individuals who were there at that time didn't have that, that benefit. Right. We know from Hebrews that Jesus is humanity's great high priest, and mm -hmm. the author of Hebrews goes on to say, he says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is a big connection here, but I'm going to ask it. Can you help us connect the dots between what we've studied thus far in Matthew with Jesus has taken his place as our great high priest? I mean, we're talking about the beginning here. We're talking about the ending there. But can you kind of connect that dots in an easy way? Mm -hmm. I, I, I hope so. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the God-man. What, what was Jesus like? Does he know everyone? Does he know everything? Does he know all the thoughts in the room? And I think there are times when he displays that he... Uh, knows uh, a lot of things. But there are also times where Jesus is amazed. That is, something happens that he doesn't expect. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that I'm kind of treading on, not on thin ice here, but I want to be careful the way I say this because I don't want to take away from Jesus' deity at all. And yet I want to honor what Hebrews says, that he lived like us. And what I mean is that 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 frustration that you can almost feel on the part of Joseph and Mary when they get back to Bethlehem and then they find out, oh, Archelaus is here. Well, now what are we going to do? One of the most universal human traits is that we don't know the future and that we're confronted with situations and we're not sure what to do. It's one thing after another for those two, isn't it? Exactly. And so what, what do you do? Well, you have to follow the Lord's leading best you can and, and, and work with scriptural sense and work with common sense and say, well, I, I guess we'll have to go back to Nazareth, right? And you just say, well, I trust this is what the Lord has for us. Hmm. And you step out by faith and you live by faith. And that's exactly what we see Jesus' mom and dad doing. And Jesus, as a child, goes with them and learns that kind of thing. And uh, when Jesus, as an adult, and other people are confronted with Wow, I didn't expect that to happen. What are we going to do now? It's not the first time Jesus has met with that feeling, right. just like all of us do. Wow, I didn't expect that to happen. Now what are we going to do? Well, keep trusting the Father and do the best you can. Well, and it's a, it's a discipline that we develop, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, a way of living life because, let's face it, each of us has those types of things that hit us daily. And we might not even see them, mm -hmm. but we do have to make those decisions in a godly, godly and certainly a biblical, we're called to make them in a biblical manner. It is. And when that happens, I think we ought to always say, Jesus, I don't know what to do here. Help me to make the right choice. There you go. 
and, and please guide me. Well, you mentioned it, and it certainly shouldn't our, escape our notice here, that the first people in the narrative to respond to the birth of the newborn king were Gentiles, mm-hmm. the, the wise men. Can you share a little about how the, those wise men from the East, as they're named here in Matthew 2, might have become aware of the birth of Jesus? And, and why is it significant that they're the ones who made such a journey? They see a star really out of the ordinary. How would they have, well, they want to follow the king of the Jews? Mm-hmm. How did they come up with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. There's a lot. There's a, there are some things, some facts that don't quite make sense in this story. I mean, they make sense, but they they change the way we think about it. Here, here's what I mean. When we notice that this, they see the star in the east, but then they come, and then the star moves, and the star points out the very house where Jesus lives. Well, a star that's, you know, not much of a star, 30 is million miles up there can't point out a certain house. This right. is a very special star. I think this is very special revelation. And I don't know exactly what form it took, if it just kind of floated around or, or God revealed to them where this house was. I don't know. The, the point is that's not important, the exact function, except that it was a miracle, a revelatory miracle hmm. that brought the Gentiles here. I think to, to um, again, show this is Jesus, the son of David, and the son of Abraham, the son of Abraham, where all those Gentiles get blessed. Right. So one false reading of Matthew says the Jews reject him and Gentiles accept him. That's not true because Gentiles put him on the cross. That's Pilate puts him on the cross. Right. Right. And not all Jews reject him. Many, many Jews accept him. But um, it's not just Jews who accept him. It is Gentiles as well. Hmm. And so they, they're the first demonstration of the first verse of the book. Right. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son oh, of Abraham. Abraham. Right. Okay, so, Chris, we've been ending, we've been trying to end our weekly discussions by requesting some homework. Mm-hmm. And as a college professor, I know that warms your heart. Mm-hmm. So next week, we'll be taking, tackling a passage that's full of a, a lot uh, a lot of rich details about the presentation of Messiah. We're really getting to that, and I think we're really getting to that point. We're yes. really getting excited. Yep. Share some aspects of chapter 3 that we should be keeping in mind as we read through this passage this week mm. leading up to Sunday. Well, if, if my little analogy of the courtroom scene was right and we are gathering witnesses— and you had three or four witnesses, who who would you save for your best and last witness? <laughs> well, Matthew saves God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 1, the genealogy. Chapter 2, the prophets. Chapter, if that doesn't put him over the top. That's, that's right. A... That's right. Chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist, the forerunner. And then finally, the, the testimony of God the Father, whose voice comes out of heaven. Hmm. So we're really building to a big climax of witnesses here with the Father and the Spirit as the Spirit anoints him. So uh, with that, I would challenge our listeners to take a look at those Old Testament passages that speak about these new and the last star witnesses. So here here are some hints. Some Old Testament chapters you should look at to learn about John and the Father would be Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapters 3 and 4 and then Psalm 2. If you read those, Isaiah 40, Malachi chapters 3 and 4, and Psalm 2, then you will see things in Matthew chapter 3 that you might never have seen before. Fascinating. 
Very good. And again, all presenting Christ. We're going to get to the point where we turn uh, later in chapter 4 and on into chapter 5 where he's really going to start taking off. Oh, boy. And sending oh, us boy. on our own journey. Well, if you have a red letter Bible, that's where you start to see the red. Right. Yep. Right. Chris Miller has been our guest today on Digging Deeper in Grace. We're focusing on his recent sermon from chapter 2 of the Gospel of Matthew, and we invite you to access Chris's sermon as well as recent podcast episodes by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking Podcast on the Media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And please join us next time as we continue in our weekly study of the book of Matthew. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you again for tuning in to this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.